Hello, and welcome back to the lair of the mechanical freak. I'm down here in the catacombs with all the freaks, uh, working on the website, working on the podcast. Today, we're going to bring you the conclusion of our interview with China historian Matthew Van Dyne that we started uh, a week ago. And uh, let's just say that uh, a lot of stuff has happened <laughs> in uh, China news, American-China relations, uh, since that interview. Um, on the more serious side, uh, The Nation had an article that came out on August 3rd uh, called Homeland Security is Quietly Tying Antifa to Foreign Powers. Uh, going over one of the things that Matt talks about and warns about in his article, which you can read on mechanicalfreak.website, Communists Around Every Corner. Uh, in the Nation article, it talks about how uh, in their effort to uh, sort of legitimize policing practices being used against protesters across the country and uh, in anticipation of greater protests once millions of people start getting evicted, um, the Trump administration uh, has had DHS busy trying to tie Antifa to various foreign uh, entities. Now, this is, you know, ridiculous on several levels. One, Antifa is not an organization. It has no leadership or central organizing capabilities. Uh, it is literally just a thing people do. Um so tying it to another country is ludicrous on its face. Uh, it also is the sort of normalization and um, sort of uh, reification, to use a fancy you know historical word, of the uh, sort of right wing conspiracy theory of an international antifa conspiracy, right? Um, I'm sure that if you scratch at that, it's it's not just going to be the protocols all over again, I'm sure. Um, you know, in Matt's article, he talks about how, you know, on the same day that the White House uh, released a press release on the politi on the quote-unquote politics of China and Chinese culture, uh, in which they decide that China is actually a deeply Marxist-Leninist state uh, and is uh, very one to the idea of promoting international Marxism-Leninism. Uh, they had also... Uh, Trump himself had issued an executive order regarding national monuments where he tied Antifa protesters to Marxism, right? And this idea of, you know, creating this foreignness to the protests, right? Which one is meant to delegitimize the protests in the eyes of the public, but also opens up, uh, you know, or creates, it doesn't open up, but creates justifications for brutal policing tactics that are already underway. Um, it's important to follow this uh, use of federal forces and understand that they are not, this is not a product of the Trump administration itself. Uh, Obama also sent federal police to put down protests, uh, most famously at Standing Rock. He also coordinated police responses out of the White House to put down the Occupy movement. 
this is a thing that has always happened. The FBI has always uh, literally came into existence for the purpose of putting down internal dissent. They are literally America's political police, and the CIA from its beginning has always operated on American soil, attacking dissidents, uh, planting fake news stories, etc. Since September 11th, uh, this has all been supercharged uh, under the Department of Homeland Security and the panic uh, that was you know, caused by the September 11th attacks. There was the creation of what are called fusion centers, which are places where po- you know, police at every level, city, county, town, state, federal, uh, work together to monitor the public. This now was you know, originally pitched as a way to share data on terrorism. However, that's never actually been how it's been used. Uh, from the beginning, it was used to monitor uh, dissent inside the country itself, uh, whether it was monitoring the anti-war movement. We now have uh, documentation data showing that in the state of Washington, uh, the uh, fusion center here was basically dedicated almost entirely to the port closure movement in Olympia uh, to the point that they had put people inside the movement and have been producing uh, publications and stuff on movement leaders, which they distributed to police officers uh, at the local level. Police officers then used that information to follow and arrest anti-war protesters. Uh, we also know that fusion centers have been monitoring Black Lives Matter protests uh, in New York. Uh, they were monitoring Black Lives Matter protests uh, going all the way back to at least 2015. Uh, and we can assume that they're monitoring all the protests now, right? So what you're looking at is actually just the continued, not a a Trump uh, anomaly, but just the continued evolution of the American police state, right? Which is a totalizing police state, right? Um, so this this justification of, uh, you know, in this case, uh, in the Nation article, they talk about, uh, you know, the Antifa's being run, I guess, by the YPG, the uh, Kurdish Liberation Army in Syria. Um, you know, uh, they can't really, they barely control their own territory, but yes, they're also, maybe because they're spending too much time on their international conspiring, I don't know. Uh, hilariously uh, citing people like Brace Belden, who, if you're terminally online, uh, you certainly are aware of uh, and are also aware that citing him as the head of some sort of international conspiracy is uh, quite funny. He's also Jewish, which is interesting. That seems to always keep popping up in these international, you know, fever, international conspiracy fever dreams from the right. On the sort of funnier and lighter side of international panics, uh, specifically relating to China, we also had earlier this week the Great Seed Panic, where people were receiving seeds, uh, usually connected, I believe, to the app Wish, which is a app where you can buy extremely cheap Chinese goods. Uh, they were receiving seeds uh, that were unmarked and that they had not ordered, uh, which instead of pointing to you know, an accidental mailing or as people figured out what was really happening, that it was actually just a uh, ploy to game uh, delivery numbers and order numbers, uh, you know, the basics of capitalism, just fraud. Um, people decided that this must be a grand conspiracy. 
when one person on Twitter, I just want to read some of these Twitter responses because they're so funny. When one person on Twitter pointed out that the seeds belong to a particular Chinese citrus, uh, you get a response from a uh, uh, you know one of the seed panic people saying, "Man, this may very well be correct, but why would people disguise it as jewelry when it's not? Come on, China, we ain't that dumb now." <laughs> um, Kennedy one replies, "Why are we just allowing this test for sending biological diseases?" Question mark. Come on. Uh, this is from Ducky again, responding to the New York Times. I'm imagining these seeds were eaten and spat out and collected. Listen here, conspiracy theorists. Maybe that's how the uh, corona spread to the U.S. And then, uh, bro, when are we just gonna go to war with China? They've been trying to undermine the U.S. for years now, and India has our back too. I mean, just fucking brilliant shit. So we have another response here. U.S. Customs finds you if you bring an apple as snacks while traveling from overseas, while China sends all these products which could potentially have germs that may kill local vegetation. Do not trust anything. And then in parentheses is what I love from this text. Unbranded that comes from China. So do not trust anything that comes from China in parentheses unbranded. So unless it's from your benevolent corporate overlords, in which case it can uh, definitely be uh, trusted, uh, which is why it's amazing uh, because it butted right up against a, another you know panic that was happening this week, which is the China TikTok panic. And, you know, this was all based around the uh, uh, social media app that the teens love, uh, TikTok, which we decided was actually a Trojan horse for evil Chinese malevolence uh, this week. And the hero of this one was Ryan Grimm, who actually generally does decent reporting (laughs) for The Intercept. But he went on to Twitter to, you know, with uh, a panicked tweet Real shame that no American company could ever duplicate the innovative tech that powered TikTok. Better just let the CCP keep hoovering up our data. Uh, Ryan Grimm then got incredibly defensive and mad when people kept pointing out that, you know, that's the model for literally everything online, including every app, like Facebook's hoovering up your data, um, you know, Twitter's hoovering up your data, like your data's going to get hoovered one way or another. To which, uh, of course, the genius says, I think Grimm might have even responded this way, but his defenders responded, yeah, but those are private companies and you know, private corporations and not governments, as if uh, governments don't buy that data from private corporations, or as if there's a significant uh, firewall between the two. Um, it was truly uh, astounding. And, of course, it... Uh, you know, went on for about 48 hours before peaking when finally somebody pointed out that Microsoft is in, you know, talks to try and buy TikTok. And, you know, the Trump administration was doing what American administrations do, which was playing hardball uh, for the behalf of American capitalism and essentially is trying to force a sale to Microsoft, something that people, you know, on the inside of the capitalist class understood a lot better than some of these idiots on the outside who are running to jingoist conspiracy theories, because on the inside of capitalism, uh, Microsoft's stock uh, skyrocketed after uh, Trump's, you know, claim that he was going to ban TikTok. Now, 
you know, Trump has said that he'll ban it in 45 days. Uh, my suspicion is is that a sale to Microsoft could potentially happen in that time. And if it doesn't, uh, probably Trump will just forget that he said he was going to ban TikTok in 45 days. But, you know, once again, those running to jingoist conspiracy theories, uh, you know, uh, end up looking silly and outflanked by those who just follow the money, right? In capitalism, it's always about money. All right, well, that was the Chinese panic for the week. Uh, I suspect that 45-day time limit means that you get uh, at least 40 more days of panic about uh, the TikTok social app and, you know, what is uh, the Chinese government going to do with your video of you uh, duct-taping white claws to your garage door and then opening the door and chugging the white claws that goes up. Uh, some have argued, I think, convincingly that uh, better the CC, yeah, the Chinese government have your personal data because what are they going to do with it than the U.S. government? But the reality is they all sell it to each other, so it really doesn't fucking matter. Uh, you're being surveilled, guys. Uh, you're not putting that genie back in the bottle, all right? Capitalism, this is what it does. It collects information. All right, with all that said, uh, let's go ahead and kick it to part two of our interview with Matt, where we uh, we get a little we get a little low key nutty with it, and we talk about the weirder aspects of the America China relationship, particularly with how it affects uh, American culture. Uh, and we're going to dive deep into uh, weird uh, libertarian seeking trad wives and the uh, potentially liberatory power of kung fu. So I'll see you on the other side and enjoy the interview. So we're back for part two of my interview with uh, Matthew Van Dyne, who once again is a historian of modern China and wrote a uh, very good article that you can find now on mechanicalfreak.website, which will be linked below. Definitely go check it out and go read it. Uh, Where we last left off, we're talking about the fascinating phenomenon online of uh, tankies. Uh, And I kind of want to begin with maybe... uh, maybe it's the mirror image of the tanky. I'm not entirely sure, but I had sent you a text that was a, uh, it was a Facebook group of libertarians who had organized a sort of, um, I don't know, Berlin airlift for the women of China (laughs) that they could, um, they could be freed of the oppressive, uh, boot of the state in hong kong by uh marrying them in the united states so, yeah <laughs> so one how'd that hit you yeah i mean i don't know <laughs> that's a weird one yeah well yeah no i love that 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 picture you sent me with the guy wearing yeah the hawaiian the boogaloo hawaiian shirt which is this new very online thing as well but but also has made its weird appearance at protests i've been to recently too which is you know terrifying uh yeah i mean you know it's like this obvious like you know this historical racism orientalism exoticization of of Chinese women, of East Asian women in general, um, 
of them needing saving. And it, you know, it, it, that doesn't just apply to East Asia either. This sort of, I think it's common in sort of imperial discourse historically about the idea of the Orient as something to be saved by the by the white man, ultimately, um, as the bringers of civilization to the world. Um, and that, like, you know, even in sort of, there's lots of academics who have written about the ways that it's not just women, but, like, men and the society and culture in general as sort of feminized, exoticized, and as in need of saving from a strong libertarian man um, yeah <laughs> um, who, and, and you know libertarians are the only real men as we all know <laughs> i mean it's so funny most women wouldn't cross the street to marry a libertarian imagine crossing an ocean yeah, right. i mean and the interesting thing is and uh you know this will be a little more meandering i think a conversation about the u.s and, Ch- and its weird relationship with china generally <laughs> than the previous one but uh there is a it's not just China, but a weird U.S. obsession with Asian women in particular, right? Like in this very creepy, <laughs> creepy way. Um, and I, I think it's kind of interesting uh, that it was being focused on women in China because uh, I think it has this... Uh, Again, to go to a very online thing, I think it focuses on this idea of a trad wife, which is, you know, a wife who will do what you say and listen to her man or whatever. But uh, like the women's movement in China actually had a lot of purchase, right? Like what what you know, what happened with uh, women in China, I guess, in a very general sense? Oh, yeah. I mean, so I mean, you know. Obviously, like historically, women have always been there in China, been doing lots of stuff, been very powerful, uh, um, you know, as around the world in patriarchal societies, which is, you know, most societies in the past, Mm -hmm. like, couple thousand years. Yeah, that's a huge generalization. But whatever. In general, yes, women's labor, women's contributions written out in a patriarchal society uh, as, as sort of. Uh, imperial Chinese society was, and that's like a huge generalization. Imperial Chinese society was changing all the time. There are periods that were relatively better, relatively worse for women. Um, in the 20th century, there is, you know, there's this very, very strong uh, feminist movement, women's liberation movement, which in the PRC has been closely connected to socialist revolution. Uh, Mao Zedong notoriously says, women hold up half the sky which is, you know, a good quote. Um, and, uh, and, and, uh, and there were many uh, Chinese women communists that were advocating for, for women's liberation and were very active in the liberation struggle. Um, and, uh, and, and once the PRC was established in 1949, or actually even uh, before that, in the the various communist base areas that the communists controlled during the the Civil War and World War II, um, the uh, communists were instituting policies that would be contributing to greater gender equality. You know, uh, the the biggest one is the the marriage laws, sort of allowing women to freely divorce their husbands, um, which is like a big deal if you think about it um you know it sounds obvious but it is you know it's a big deal um and uh yeah and 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 women made a lot of gains uh 
under the communists in China. They're also, you know, I think it would be naive to say that perfect gender equality was a reach was reached in a society that has a long tradition of of being a patriarchal society. Um, but women did make a lot of gains, and there's a lot of ways that sort of um, so this this great article that I love to uh, assign to students, uh, and it's call me Qingyan, not Funu. Uh, and it, so basically it means call me a youth, not a housewife. Um, and mm-hmm. it's uh, a, 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 a scholar, Wang Zheng, reflecting on her experiences growing up under the communists and then also coming to the United States where she's an academic um, um, and uh, yeah, a really great academic. Everyone check her out. Um, and, mm-hmm. uh, and, and so, and her reflections are basically, yeah, like when I was young, I wanted to like, the idea was that we should all be, we we're all just used. We we're all just socialist young people working towards building a communist society. Um, and that is better than being a housewife, um, which is this, you know, this rem- this relic of the old society. And we're trying to move beyond that. Um, and, and in this essay, she reflects on, well, my actual experiences were that, yeah, no, I definitely faced some gender discrimination. And I saw it uh, as I was a young person growing up in the 60s and 70s. And communist society did not at all achieve its stated aims of sort of erasing gender distinctions. And I think there's a bit of an argument there, too, that like, well, maybe erasing gender distinctions isn't that's might not be what everyone's looking for either. But then just mm-hmm. about and like and then I came to the US and like everyone was like and you know like women are so oppressed in communist China everything's so horrible and then she describes like being appalled of listening to a colleague describe um that her daughter was a cheerleader and being so proud of her daughter being a cheerleader and being appalled that like wait so she just cheers on the boys playing football like why is that something to be proud of? <laughs> but yeah yeah. Um yeah, that I think it, yeah, I'll, we should definitely link to it. But I think it like those types of things. It, it points to like yeah, no, like things are complicated. There is this very powerful women's movement. It is very tied up to socialist revolution. Uh, Chinese women are not in need of saving. No women are needed saving <laughs> anywhere around the world. Um, but that is a nice fiction for the boogaloo boys of the world that um, yeah, that that want to advance their own interest yeah (laughs) yeah and and again i mean i think it shows also this just strange understanding in the united states of china as this almost like pre-modern society too right like uh you know i think some people in one hand they understand that china is like this industrial sort of powerhouse but on the other hand they imagine everybody's still living in huts somehow or something you know um it's sort of a a real interesting uh, play there. Oh, yeah. Well, and just to like, yeah, I mean, there's so many examples that I have seen in my life of times of meeting people in China, meeting specifically, say, like, foreign dudes in China that are really into trying to hook up with Chinese women. Um, and yeah, no, it's a very, very real thing. Uh, and mm-hmm. like uh, the sexism, the racism that are tied up in those attitudes are very real. But yeah, it's also like, always like a bunch of like weird dudes that like are really weird in the U S and see like going abroad as their playground. Um, and yeah, which has like a long colonial legacy. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. and 
bringing back wives from China and other places. And like, you know, I think there's always this like interesting thing of like, if you meet some of these couples where like, there's obviously some sexism and racism going into the founding of the relationship, but like, then like, you see this relationship and you actually see the couple and it's like, oh no, this is a very complicated relationship. And the woman's almost always seems to have more power and it's like working towards her own interests as well. And it's a, mm-hmm. it's a complicated situation. And of course there's real love too. Like definitely, you know, it's, it's all types. It's, I don't want to generalize mm-hmm. too much, but yeah, yeah. there's yeah. historical tropes of this and lots of examples. Uh, there's one reality TV show. In fact, that I will bring up while bringing up like weird things that uh, I've, maybe come across before called 90 day fiance which if you want to see uh, a grassroots look at at the at some of these ideas it's really really great you it's the premise of the show is a uh united a, a, a united states citizen finds a spouse from abroad and has to bring them to the u.s and they have 90 days on the spousal visa to get married uh, and it follows their their various struggles, and there's like a lot of gross characters who's like the sixty year old man with the eighteen year old Filipino bride and stuff. Um, <laughs> yeah, super cool, super yeah. cool. So, <laughs> Jesus, yeah. Um, I know there was a, a big trade in sort of like Eastern European brides after the fall of the Soviet Union, and again, it seemed to follow the same logic of. Uh, you know, the women in America are too mouthy. I'm going to get this like Russian bride or whatever. And it's like, what did you think was going on in the Soviet Union? <laughs> right? Like, what you, like, how do you think these like, yeah, but it, it's, you know, it, just one of those uh, tragic sort of like imperial stories, but Jesus Christ. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I mean, and given the sort of, there's, there's also this sort of like left fascination with China, which I also find extremely interesting, which particularly when you go to like the 60s and 70s, um, like a lot of people probably know that like the Black Panther Party in the Bay Area got started. Like one of their big fundraisers was Sally Mao's little red book, like oh at God. things. Yeah. Um, you get, I think even Vijay Prashad might have written this book, but uh, the obsession in like the in things like the Black Power movement in the late sixties and early seventies, as well as the left generally, mm-hmm. with things like kung fu movies yeah. and shit coming out of China. And on the one hand, the the fascination makes sense because China's going through this extraordinary, I think, political moment at that time, which is the Cultural Revolution, which I think it's underappreciated the international impact that that had um, on the left generally. But at the same time. Uh, we somehow just metabolized it through these uh, just bizarre cultural products, you know, which I, I'm just picturing like guys in like 1968 looking at it and being like, you know, man, every, you know, China was able to overthrow capitalism via Kung Fu or something. Yeah, like right. that. <laughs> and it, it, it is this sort of uh, it's, it's this weird thing that kind of uh, I, I feel like has a, a touch of carryover as well. It might inspire some of the uh, some of our tanky friends. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I think that's probably right. Yeah, and I mean, there there are some like great kung fu movies where like there there are scenes like that. Oh man, is it maybe Once Upon a Time in China? It's a it's a Jet Li movie where it's like him fighting like British imperialists with like kung fu versus like mm-hmm. like the weapons of imperialism. Um, but yeah, obviously, there's like a strange obsession with it all. So. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of really good ones. I think there's one called the Iron Monkey, where the guy's like beating up landlords. It's pretty badass. But uh, 
But I, you know, I, I think that again, sort of from a uh, less obviously creepy and predatory, you know, angle, it's the sort of the West kind of like projecting uh, onto China, right? <laughs> like mm-hmm. like yeah. what, what it, what it wants, what it desires or something, you know, yeah. um, you know, trying to, uh, you know, and some of it for the left too, I think is like trying to imagine how in the late sixties, China got what it got, but not in, you know, but not dealing with the reality, which is yeah. you're going to have to fight a prolonged protracted war, which, you know, lots of people are going to die. Yeah. You know? yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, is, yeah. there, is there a shortcut to get me there? Yeah. Is it Kung Fu? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I have a, I have a great example from your home state of Texas, actually. Brian, have you ever heard of the Red Guards Austin? Uh, only from their placement of pig heads on signposts. Yep, yep, uh, yep. So, and <laughs> pig's heads that are not calling out, like, the police, but I think the DSA they were actually, like, attacking with those yeah, pig I think heads. Yeah, I see that the DSA are maybe out, like, outside, like, a Bernie headquarters or something like that. Uh, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, but, but yeah, I, I mean, I think that it's, like, a very strange, like, a Maoist sect of probably, like, mm-hmm. eight people who, you know, act like they are red guard like yeah and, and that's mm-hmm. the type of thing like you know i think the idea of like larping is maybe like thrown rather than insult at, at leftists too much but like it is th- that just seems like it is an example of, of of larping of like projecting this image of what the cultural revolution was and then somehow imagining that you can have the cultural revolution in austin texas right now <laughs> um yeah yeah when you're sort of you know in, in the 60s at least they were uh making a copy of like an original, right? You know, they were looking at it happen in China and they were trying to understand it through whatever, you know, uh, I'm sure extremely mediated information uh, that they could get. And then now it's just, it's gone through so many copies up to this point that, yeah, it, it is sort of a LARP in the sense that I don't think anybody gets. <laughs> like, I think if you talk to the Red Guard of Austin, I think it would be fascinating to hear their take on uh you know, Chinese politics and the politics of the cultural revolution. I, oh, I would yeah. be interested. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's this sort of, uh, you know, this, this, this fascination with China is, is interesting. And, you know, maybe to sort of ground it to, let's talk a little bit about just the sort of U.S. Uh, relationship with China, because there's this one, there was this quote that I heard the other day, I was listening to a, uh, podcast on uh the vietnam war which was uh very depressing but uh they had this quote from robert mcnamara and you know as much as we think that like uh we're in a china panic now like we're really in a china panic in like the 50s and 60s and uh mcnamara you know at the very beginning of uh uh the kennedy administration is basically telling kennedy uh look we're gonna have to escalate in vietnam because China is going to rally all the countries of Asia against us, right? And it was fascinating because it was this uh, just comically hilarious understanding of the world, which I, which I mean, this is like private communications between them. So I don't think they were like fucking. I don't think they're joking. Like I think he was being serious. But uh, you know, this idea that. Asia has no history of its own and that uh, China will just, you know, I guess be king of Asia. <laughs> like to, <laughs> that Vietnam is its vassal and Thailand and Cambodia right, right, and Laos right. are its vassals. Yeah. Yeah. And um, 
And again, we're talking about the very top levels of the U.S. state. I mean, they're basing, uh, you know, this a war partly on this sort of idea. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's sort of this fascinating thing. I mean, what is, what is China's like relationship with its neighbors? Because I don't think it's very good with Vietnam. Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, there is a history of, like, a long history of Imperial China sort of treating Vietnam specifically as a tributary state. And then, yeah, and then, like, a complicated relationship once they, um, well, obviously then Vietnam became a French colony and then the U.S. invaded and blah, blah, blah. But, um, but yeah, uh, like, Vietnam and China were at times China, the PRC was was helping Vietnam in its struggle against U.S. imperialism, but then uh, would actually end up invading Vietnam in uh, 1978. Uh, it might be 1979. But anyways, just to, uh, yeah, after Vietnam had invaded Cambodia to stop the Khmer Rouge genocide happening at the time, which the U.S., of course, was like, caused through its massive bombing campaigns and also like maybe was like supporting a little bit yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're still waiting on this on the documents on that yeah. but i think, I think we, I can go in and put a, a yes pencil yes in next to that yeah yeah, yeah. so i and like all that's a very complicated history obviously but i think yeah it's getting at this point of like yeah east asia southeast east asia a is not southeast asia and it's all not a monolithic block and China does not, you know, is not pulling the strings behind all of these other nations and peoples and whatnot. And everyone has complicated ideas about what they want their world to be and are struggling to make it that way in different ways. Um, and that's that type of, of image of the world as being one that is actually made by people with diverse interests is one that is never allowed for anywhere outside of the U.S. and sometimes not even within the U.S. either, right? So, Yeah, yeah, because yeah, I feel like we look at China and Vietnam and we're like, uh, they're both communists, right? They get along. And uh, it's like, yeah, there was this whole period before they became communists where, you know, they might have had a fraught relationship or two that soured, yeah. <laughs> that soured people against each other. Um, yeah, because, I mean, interestingly, you know, so... Basically, the U.S. is uh, fully on the fuck China train up until like I think it's 73 when Nixon or 72 and Nixon finally goes to China or, you know, the famous Nixon yeah, goes to yeah. China or whatever, where he essentially makes a very convenient, you know, uh, kind of relate, you know, creates a sort of convenient relationship with China, uh, you know, as uh, vis-a-vis the Soviet Union, to essentially antagonize the <laughs> Soviet Union. But it then creates this other interesting problem because we had this uh, great ally slash uh, aircraft carrier called <laughs> Japan off of China's coast. Taiwan. <laughs> yeah, Taiwan as well. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Where, yeah, the U.S. was using uh, Taiwan and Japan essentially as like, uh, you know, stationary aircraft carriers. And, uh, you know, uh, China and those countries don't have a great relationship <laughs> themselves. Yeah. Right? You know? Yeah. Um, well, and actually, ta- Taiwan is really important there because, like, the U.S didn't recognize the people's republic of china as as china until i think it was 1979 officially uh and uh until 1971 or 1972 taiwan had china's seat in in the un and to give some background taiwan uh after 1949 the uh became the home of the the nationalist party that was the big rival of the communists for control of mainland china that was led by chiang kai-shek 
And after 1949, the nationalists fled to Taiwan and the U.S. would support them and officially recognize Taiwan, an island of now like 20 million people as the official China until um, until 19, the 1970s. So uh, and that really pissed China off a lot. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, that and I love everybody in the UN just being like, yeah, it's totally normal that a, an island off the coast of a nation of a billion people is going to speak for, <laughs> you know, that that nation, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, really speaks to the legitimacy of the UN. I'll tell you that. But yeah, um, yeah I mean, you know, and I guess, you know, it, the comfort of like these good versus bad narratives that we sort of were talking about the comfort of it is that it is easy to explain rather than the complicated jumble that we're sort of spelling out here. Right. Because this is difficult, right? Because in the same region, right. The Chinese interestingly uh, have this very deep relationship with the uh, Korean resistance that essentially, you know, ends up creating or forming North Korea. And, you know, there's this sort of, uh, you know, at least, hangover of a good relationship between the two countries and then of course our other immobile air force carrier in that region which is south korea you know of course the friction there right and it's this really complicated sort of area of of international relationships that are largely mediated by just a u.s military presence in there that i would argue probably makes all the relationships worse but oh uh, yeah a hundred percent yeah yeah uh yeah i mean you know probably the best thing that could happen to the korean peninsula is the u.s just fucking leave immediately just get the fuck out like that would be the absolute best possible situation well it's uh, Say, like, uh, to, to carry on this example, too, like, I mean, I think so much of, like, the Cold War U.S.-China tension was, yeah, it was, it was based around, say, the Korean Peninsula. And, you know, there were, like, things didn't need to turn out as they turned out in terms of, of like, like the U.S. and China being, being mortal enemies. Uh, uh, but, but, you know once the US was was supporting the you know police state in in in, in Korea and and uh, fighting the Korean war right on China's border and China got involved and very rightfully felt very very threatened um, cuz like what is the US doing on China's border why is it there um, yeah <laughs> it is somehow it's strange that that is painted as chinese aggression when when China intervened in the the Korean war but yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when we talk about the area, it's, you know, fascinating that, uh, you know, uh, at one point China was building an island in the South China Sea and we wrote it off as this is, you know, I think eight or nine years ago, we wrote it off as Chinese aggression in the South China Sea. And like, you know, Obama's sort of uh, policy of ringing China with more bases, you know, building up bases in Australia and such was this idea we had to stop Chinese aggression which apparently begins the second anybody in China like walks into the water, right? <laughs> you know? Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, which is, I mean, it's fascinating that uh, U.S. military bases in the South China Sea are not aggressive, but uh, you know, China. I mean, there is. I mean, and again, this gets us in the, into the tanky thing of you know, I gotta, def- you know, like if anybody belongs to the South China Sea, I guess, I guess it's China. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, um, 
<laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's fascinating. I mean, so that's the the international situation, and the international situation is such too that I think, you know, I I, I think this is sort of Bruce Cummings' opinion on it. And it's certainly my opinion on it, which is that the U.S. wants all those tensions to just continue, right? Because if you don't have tensions with China, then you know why should the Japanese allow you to stay? You know, with yeah. your bases. Yeah, yeah, um, that's right. right. Yeah, how how do you justify the U.S. military presence without this constant ramping up of tensions? And you know, yeah. going back to what we talked about in part one, without like talking about human rights violations as well, yeah. and like that is being a way of contributing to the the, the tensions that are desired. Um, yeah, and it's a, sort of this other angle to it, right, which is that constantly kind of keeping it at a, a sort of slow simmer with occasional crises, right, it justifies the sort of imperial presence there, which is massive. I don't think any American really understands like how many uh, American, like how large mm-hmm. the U.S. force presence is oh, yeah. off the coast of China. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, and how much say like people in in Japan and like Okinawa specifically like really don't like the bases there and, and protest I, against them. Yeah, I mean, when you talk about the interesting politics of the region, I mean, Japan essentially brokered a deal with the U.S. to put all its like you know the vast bulk of its military you know on Okinawa on Okinawa because the Okinawans were this uh, basically. Uh, imperial colony of japan and they were like yeah fuck those guys like you can put your shit there um which is you know just a startlingly tragic uh story itself i mean uh i think i remember you know every uh five years when uh, the u.s decides that a collapse in north korea is imminent you know i always joke with people who take that shit seriously that you know the collapse of north korea would be the worst possible outcome for like the u.s imperial state yeah. <laughs> you know they would uh be in a real because the south koreans also hate the u.s military presence and you know it's not like we're gonna leave if north korea goes away so it's, it's gonna create a real diplomatic problem <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know? we might have yeah. to admit that it's actually a colony and not its own country um <laughs> you know but uh but that kind of brings to like the domestic side because China has this weird relationship with the U.S. domestically, which, uh, you know, I know that David Harvey has this whole argument that when the U.S. like really committed to neoliberalism in the 70s and committed to like Americans having a lower lower wages and a lower standard of living, the way they sort of subsidized that in people's minds was on the one hand with increased credit, right? So everybody gets mm-hmm. credit cards now, but also with bringing in cheap Chinese goods, right? To subsidize the wage loss, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you're not getting paid as much, but the stuff costs less because we're going to bring it in from China now. And, uh, you know, and it created this sort of, you know, weird domestic relationship where uh, American standards of living were tied to the Chinese economy. But at the same time, in the 90s, we had this real like anti-globalization push that I think, you know, portrayed China as the sort of uh, evil producer in the world. Right, right. Yeah, like colloquialisms about how everything was made in China as if as like as like a negative thing. But then, of course, there's this irony of like, oh, I'm buying all these like commodities in capitalist America from communist china but no one ever questions like maybe these like the definitions we have for these terms are <laughs> yeah yeah i, remember, I think it, it it reached its absolute like ridiculous apex during the bush administration i don't know if you remember this but there was uh the the a big scare about tainted dog food from china and then uh and everybody of course lost their fucking minds and uh you know some people are grandstanding in congress so they're gonna like do sanctions against china for it and in the Chinese company literally came out and was like, 
this is the like recipe and ingredients the American company we're making this for gave us to do. Like, yeah. like we literally make what you tell us to make. That's it, oh, yeah. right. You know? Yeah, and there's certainly no examples of American companies yeah. pushing dangerous products onto the market. Well, for it, the it, it, joy of making a buck. Uh, yeah, it, you know, it's ridiculous. Yeah, it, it, it was this way to again pass the buck on. Yeah, on American capitalism, right? Like uh, American capitalist companies can't be evil no matter how many, you know, mines they collapse or rivers they poison or whatever because China, right? Uh, And also like your situation as a worker, it's definitely not bad because Jeff Bezos has billions. It's definitely not bad because we live in a wildly unequal society and a lot of forces are, you know, making it that way. It's uh, Chinese uh, capitalism. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Chinese capitalism went into your pocketbook and changed your wage. Right. Yeah. Yeah. uh, They took your jobs. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's it's this sort of astonishing thing. I mean... um, it's this uh, weird boogeyman under the bed, right? Uh, yeah. That's always waiting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I so we, we've kind of like have <laughs> dug into a lot of the Chinese stuff. I just want to get to, to, to one more thing, which you talk about in your article, actually. And it was this idea of, you know, the, the China uh, conundrum or whatever, right? This idea that, you know, China became more capitalist, right? Uh, but somehow it didn't become more uh, democratic, whatever the fuck that means. Mm-hmm. Um, which I, I I took a whole class on democratization in college, and the only thing that you learn at the end is that democracy democracy means nothing. It's an absolutely meaningless statement. But <laughs> we can go into the, that at some other time. But, um, but it didn't become more democratic. And there's this sort of theory that I don't know if people know, but that's very popular in political science circles that uh, A, that capitalism is the progenitor of democracy, and that B, uh, democratic nations are inherently friendly to one another, which I think this ties into China as the great big bad guy, right? Like if only they were more democratic, they would be uh, like us and uh, we wouldn't go to war with one another. Um, and I just thought, since you're a China historian, that uh, maybe you could give us what China's uh, early, because uh, China's had a relationship with capitalism prior to Dang, right? So, what was their early relationship to capitalism? Yeah, <laughs> so uh, good story. So, 19th century, right? Uh, the British primarily, but also the United States and France and other countries as well. They have this great desire for products made in China because for a long time, China's been making lots of cool stuff uh in the 19th century tea was a big one uh and you know we all think of uh of of tea as a british thing which is weird because we also all know that it you know comes from china and india um well you know every time you watch like a british cooking show they always say like you know we're here to make good british cuisine curries tea, you know like yeah. something like that so it's always you know fascinating <laughs> yeah right uh, huh. but anybody who's <laughs> british food understands why they want to claim anything else <laughs> yeah and yeah yeah so so like the british wanted to buy tea it's becoming very popular uh early like late 18th early 19th century at the time the the only place that uh that they could trade tea according to the Qing dynasty's regulations was through the port at Guangzhou, 
uh, which was uh, it's called Canton in in English sometimes, and uh, and you know people still refer to this as like the Canton system of of British traders going to to, to Guangzhou and and buying tea with with silver. Uh, yeah, which which was very expensive. The balance of trade was not in the favor of the British, so they were looking for some way to to change this relationship that would be more advantageous for them, uh, and they found a wonderful product in opium. Uh, which you know, opium is the the comes from the 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 beautiful poppies of which uh, I have a few in my garden. They're very very pretty flowers, um, and it, <laughs> it so happens that you can turn them into opium. Which then, of course, you can also turn the opium into into heroin and morphine and and, and then you know, oxycontin, blah blah blah. Uh, yeah. So um, so the British are growing opium in. India, which they have also begun to colonize in the in the 18th century, and they discover, well, hey, you know what a cool idea would be? Would be if we got a bunch of Chinese people hooked on opium, sold the opium them to silver, and then bought the tea back with that silver. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, unsurprisingly, uh, the Qing officials did not love this plan for obvious reasons. And, uh, and and tried to put a stop to it, and and it was always complicated. And there's like a, a a complicated thing called like the country trade, where the British recognized it was illegal to sell opium to China, so they would uh, sell opium at auction in in Calcutta in India uh, to various smugglers, regist- of you know a motley crew of 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 people, including many Americans, um, in addition to just British and French and others, uh, the smugglers would, would sail from opium to, to Southern China, would, would trade it to other smugglers who would take it to China. And then the smugglers would eventually get silver that they would trade for a bank of credit from the, to the British East India company. Then they could use that credit to buy more opium and, and the cycle continues. Um, and complicated story, summed up British sell drugs to China uh, mm-hmm. and China tried to stop that or the Qing dynasty tried to stop that. And then a number of wars were fought by the British in the name of free trade. Um, and if you read uh, Lord Palmerston's declaration of war from, from 1838, where he talks about the reasons for declaring war on, on the Qing dynasty, it's because of the affronts to the British traders committed by Qing officials that had dumped their opium into the harbor. And it, it, it presents itself with this, with this developing language of free trade that is, you know, developed, of course, developing alongside the development of capitalism. Um, and this idea of, yeah, that, that we should be able to trade our goods on the world market freely and that this is mm-hmm. somehow a a universal value that anyone who is respecting individual rights and individual property rights should want. Um, and any affront to it is, is an affront to these sort of universal values of humankind. Um, it becomes a justification of war. And, and, and you know, and it's interesting to, to think about it in terms of like this universal language that very much, you know, people still use today all the time, right? Um, and to think about the historical context of this is basically British officials just like, trying to to sell drugs to china um yeah yeah that's that's the those are the historical conditions of some of this discourse of free trade um 
And yeah, yeah so that's it, not a great experience with with capitalism. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it did not bring uh, democracy in that case, or even prosperity, right? And um, you know, it it's always one of those sort of uncomfortable truths when you're in a political science class where this comes up, when uh, somebody inevitably brings up the fact that like. Well, you know, pretty much most of the world is uh, capitalist, but most of the world's, I mean, you'd, you'd be a real stretch to call most countries in the world democratic or uh, prosperous, you know? Yeah. Um, that, that doesn't seem to be the relationship that right, capitalism yeah. brings. Yeah, and like, like democracy, I guess, like, you know, I mean, it's a meaningless word, but like, you know, I think most people have some idea of it hinging along, along choice, maybe, that like people or countries or societies would have like some some say in the decision-making process in this example of, you know, fighting a war with industrial military technology uh, to sell drugs. That doesn't sound like choice to me in any way. So for, for the, yeah. So, yeah. And I mean, you know, you can, uh, you know, go all the way back to uh, Marx to read the hilarious uh, defenses of uh, free trade that the British give when it's convenient and the uh, sometimes the exact same people, the defenses against free trade that they give when it becomes inconvenient. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, and there's this interesting sort of connection. I mean, the Opium Wars is always this interesting thing that probably we should talk more about when we talk about uh, Western history, at least, in the sense that it's not like this was a one-off event, right? I mean, you know, all the way to the modern period, uh, the selling of uh, opium essentially to fund, you know, secret wars in Laos and Cambodia mm-hmm. during the Vietnam War, uh, the selling of opium to fund, you know, Afghani uh, groups, and uh, you know, fighting the Soviet Union in the 1980s, right? And, of course, in Latin America, using cocaine sales to fund, uh, you know, death squads throughout yeah. <laughs> Latin America. I mean... It, uh, it really is this like sordid history. I mean, there's actually probably a lot more evidence that, uh, you know, uh, psychotic death squad drug wars are more uh, inherent to capitalism than democracy. I think right. yeah. <laughs> they seem to at least be more prevalent. <laughs> so, so it puts things like the war on drugs in an interesting perspective as well, too. Right. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh you would think that in the 80s and 90s, right, or even today, right, the cartels should be able to argue for the uh, sacred uh, sacredness of free trade. Yeah, right. Uh, War for drugs. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's it's always this sort of fascinating thing when uh, I think with China in particular, but with a lot of countries where people look at it and they're like, why isn't their system more like ours? With, of course, always having the memory of a gnat, forgetting that. China has a relationship with the West, a long one, mm-hmm. uh, generally not positive. Yeah, yeah, no, <laughs> absolutely. Know? Yeah, and like that, and I think that history is just like completely unknown in amongst ninety nine point nine percent people in the U.S. Right, and this, including the ones spouting the anti China China rhetoric, and and uh, but yeah, it's 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 not unknown in China. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I and I think uh, you know I I think I might have even when I was there I think I took a picture of it and sent it to you, but I remember when I was walking around in London and I of course have to read every plaque when I walk by, I saw this amazing uh, war memorial uh, to the Boxer Rebellion, and it was this heroic 
you know, freeze of British soldiers just gunning down Chinese peasants with farm implements. Cool. <laughs> and, uh, you know, credit to the British for their uh, realism in the <laughs> occupation. But yeah, I, I think it's just completely lost that, you know, the, you know, Western, you know, the U.S. had its own little sphere of influence in China, the British did, right? You know, that occupation was, I mean, horrifyingly violent on you know on a level with all the worst atrocities of the 20th century um yeah just just a real treat <laughs> but so yeah. is there anything you know else on uh on china that you want to you want to get out there <laughs> no I think, I, think, I think we covered it all <laughs> yeah yeah it's all covered it is this has been a full class we we're done with china <laughs> Uh, what's the K-pop situation? Does China have its own version of K-pop? I mean, yeah, there's Chinese pop music. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's like, uh, like, like Canto pop is probably like maybe a, a, a like, uh, like Cantonese pop and like maybe like Hong Kong is very popular as well. Um, which might be like a closer analogy, but there's definitely like lots of Chinese pop music and stuff. Uh, and K-pop itself is very popular. So there's that. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's the, the Chinese and we're gonna have to do like I keep roping you into this. We're going to do a full episode on the Chinese film industry, the modern Chinese film industry. Oh yeah. Uh, some of the movies that have come out in the last 20 years are uh wild. <laughs> yeah. Well, when we're talking when we were talking about uh investment in in Africa, uh I think the movie Wolf Warrior 2 is is a a pretty good good lesson. <laughs> but so yeah. I'll just I'll just plug that and say like before the next the next episode everyone needs to watch Wolf Warrior 2. But yeah, definitely. Uh I'm sure a real treat. I mean, it was so funny uh and again, I this gets to the point of like people in the US fully misunderstanding a lot of like the US relationship with China and China's relationship with the world, right? There was that movie which I'm totally blanking on the name now. I'm sure it's some dumb easy thing, but that where Matt Damon fights dragons on the Great Wall. Oh, I think it's just called the Great Wall. But it's just called the Great Wall. I, I, so. I, I kept in my mind. I was like, I think it's called the Great Wall, but it's like that's too stupid. Um, <laughs> that sounds like one of those names that you come up with early in the project, and you're like, we'll come up with <laughs> yeah, that working title. Yeah, it just never quite gets there. But yeah, I mean, it was this. You saw this, right? I think yeah. we even talked about this. This just amazing movie about a you know one so the online you know capital d discourse about it was uh how it was uh you know appropriation or something either they couldn't believe that matt damon was the star of this chinese movie why is the white guy got to be the star and stuff and it was this fascinating thing because i don't think anybody watched the movie because it's incredibly boring and very long uh (laughs) (laughs) but the movie itself was actually this fascinating uh it was a cinematic portrayal of the U.S. handing over the reins of the world to China, <laughs> right? <laughs> As unworthy protectors and guarantors of the world. And China basically being like, look, we know we've just been watching our own backyard uh, because we're so good and pure, but we will take over the protection. Yeah, of yeah. yeah, no, it, it was the complete opposite of the white savior thing that it got criticized for. And like, that's understandable. I can see like why oh, yeah. everyone was like jumping on like the Great Wall with Matt Damon. That doesn't sound right. But like, mm-hmm. yeah, the actual story is 
even more complicated but yeah yeah, yeah. i mean uh you know the the chinese uh, film industry i you know yeah. we'll have to get it at a different time but yeah, for yeah, various yeah. reasons has made some uh real nationalist i think masterpieces yeah which i will argue are better than most american movies anyway so even though they yeah, have yeah. Uh, these insane politics they're like ex- you know it's an american movies so it's fine <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah <laughs> all right matt well you know, thanks for coming on. I remind everybody your article is up on uh, mechanicalfreak.website. We got the link to it down below. Um, anything uh, you got going on? Anything exciting? <laughs> nope. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, trying not to get COVID. I, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I'll plug the uh, Northwest Community Bail Fund for you. By the yeah, way, yeah. yeah, do that. Yeah, well, you know, just give people context. We're literally talking this on, on Sunday, the night after uh, SPD uh, got their riot card back and just went ape shit all over everybody in Seattle. And I'm presuming they're doing it right now as we're talking as well. Yeah, it's very possible. Um, and yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, uh, just give a little context. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and like, you know, yeah, obviously connected to the feds coming, which is connected to the monuments executive order. So, yeah. 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 So if you want to, uh, we talked about, you know, people should maybe be a little more concerned with things they can actually affect. Uh, donate to the Northwest Community yeah. Bail Fund. Uh, yeah. Maybe go out to a go out to a protest. Yeah, guys. Come out to the streets, but bring an umbrella and, and protective gear. Yeah. SPD yeah, is not got, fucking around. Yeah. Yeah. You're probably going to get tear gassed. Uh, but honestly, look, I'm not going to say it's not bad. <laughs> it's not it's not as bad as you think, though. I, you'll you'll it's a good time. <laughs> go out there well yeah maybe maybe that federal judge's injunction on the use of chemical weapons will expire and then that law will work although like I, I always feel like it was the spd could use whatever they wanted whenever they wanted when they decided it was necessary anyways uh you know a long study of policing has informed me that the police do what the fuck they want because they're yeah. a armed <laughs> large armed group and that is how that that is politics work you yeah. know hey um, thank god we don't live in a police state like china few yeah yeah no shit right <laughs> maybe uh, we should end yeah. on that <laughs> yeah. yeah all right well matt thanks for uh coming on and uh yeah and uh, everybody thanks for listening and we'll see you guys in the future all right bye bye Bye. <laughs>